Well, we uh, truly could not have had a more perfect song uh, for the new study that we began last Sunday on the uh, little book of Philippians in the New Testament. And if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn there and just hold your place. We'll be uh, delving into the first chapter uh, this morning. Uh, Last week, I provided some background information and an overview of the book of Philippians. Uh, So for review, let me just highlight what I would consider uh, the most uh, significant points that we discovered last week uh, that will have great bearing on our study of the book of Philippians. And let me mention four uh, very significant points uh, that were made last week. The first significant point is the location or was the location of the city of Philippi. Uh, We mentioned it was on the Ignatian Way, uh, which was the Roman highway uh, connecting Europe and Asia. Uh, Philippi was located in what we know today to be northeast Greece, right in the middle of the Ignatian Way, uh, which uh, made it the gateway uh, between Europe and Asia. Therefore, it was strategically important for a church to be planted in Philippi to provide a base of operations from which the gospel could be advanced both in Europe and into Asia. The second significant point from last week uh, is the monumental battle uh, that was fought right outside the city of Philippi uh, 42 years uh, before the birth of Christ. Uh, This particular battle, as we mentioned last week, ended uh, the civil war uh, between the Roman Senate and those who desired uh, a military dictatorship. Uh, The forces loyal to the Senate uh, lost the battle, which led to Caesar Augustus being named the first emperor of Rome, uh, and he ruled with absolute power requiring absolute obedience uh, from all. Now, why is that significant to our study of Philippians? Because Caesar Augustus, after that battle, uh, converted the city of Philippi into a Roman military colony, with all the Greek citizens of Philippi being granted Roman citizenship, which created intense loyalty for the Roman Empire. Uh, Philippi uh, became a hotbed for the emperor cult, which deified and worshipped the emperor above all other gods. And so this put the believers of Philippi on a collision course with the Roman Empire because of their supreme allegiance to Jesus Christ. The third significant point that we saw last week was the special relationship Uh, that the Apostle Paul had with this church in Philippi. Uh, We saw that Paul established the church in 52 A.D., which you can read about in detail in Acts chapter 16. Uh, The church was literally born in the fires of persecution, which welded the hearts of Paul and the believers in Philippi together as one. In Philippians 4, Uh, Paul acknowledges that there was no other church that supported and partnered with him in the advance of the gospel like the church of Philippi. 
And we'll see as we go throughout this study that this created very deep friendship, very deep affection and love between Paul and the church. And then the fourth significant point, of course, uh, the reason that Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians, which was written uh, ten years after he established the church. Uh, At the time, Paul was uh, in prison in the city of Rome uh, because of his faith in Christ. And the church at Philippi sent him a financial uh, gift uh, that was delivered by one of their uh, key leaders. And, uh, of course, uh, with that key leader uh, delivering the gift, he also gave Paul an update on the affairs of the church. So Paul wrote the letter of Philippians to first thank the church for their generous gift and the support of him over the years uh, to provide an update to them about his own situation uh, because of the Roman imprisonment and then to address two areas of concern related to the church. First, disunity from within the church and then second, persecution uh, from without which uh, was very, very fierce as we already mentioned, in the city of Philippi because of the uh, emperor cult. Uh, On the first side of your sermon notes this morning is the overview of the book of Philippians that I actually provided for you uh, last Sunday. Uh, Today we'll begin to examine uh, chapter 1, where, as you can see in that overview, the emphasis is on living the gospel of Christ in three ways. Uh, by fellowshipping in the gospel of Christ, which will be our focus this morning. And then next week, we'll look at by advancing the gospel of Christ. And then third, by suffering uh, for the gospel of Christ. You'll also see on the first page of your notes at the bottom, uh, what we called last Sunday the very heart and soul of the book of Philippians, uh, the fourfold Christ. This beautiful picture of Jesus in uh, relationship to the experience of the believer. And you see uh, each little snapshot of Christ in each of the four chapters. In chapter 1, Christ our life, uh, with verse 21 being the key verse where Paul says, For to me to live is what? Christ, and to die is gain. And, of course, the application is, as followers of Christ, we're to live for Him in any and all circumstances. We're to see our circumstances merely as a backdrop, as a platform to be able to put Jesus on display, to extend His presence, to express His lovely character. In chapter 2, we see Christ, our mind, the key verse being verse 5, have this mind or this attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And the application there is to love like Christ in all relationships. Uh, that we're to see others uh, from the eyes of Christ. Uh, We're to embrace them with the arms of Christ, and we're to love them with the heart of Christ. And then in chapter 3, a beautiful picture of Jesus or Christ as our goal, uh, with uh, verse 14 being the key verse when Paul says, I press on towards that goal of the prize of my high calling, in Christ Jesus, where he explains it is one ambition in Christ, in, in, uh, in life, is to know Jesus, uh, to be made uh, uh, conformable to his death, knowing the fellowship of his sufferings, knowing the power of the resurrection. And the application here is to look to Christ in all decisions, that when I come to any decision, when I come to any crossroads, I make that decision in life, what's going to take me nearer to Christ? 
What's going to take me closer to Christ? What's going to aid me in, in, in achieving that goal of knowing Him and making Him known to a lost world? And then chapter 4, uh, the picture is Christ our strength, with the key verse being verse 13. I can do all things, Paul says, through Christ who strengthens me, through Christ who infuses His life into me. And the application here is that I'm to lean on Christ in all, all challenges. The only way that I can live for Christ in all circumstances, the only way I can love like Christ in all relationships, the only way I can look to Christ in all decisions is by what? Leaning on Christ. Uh, knowing His grace at work in me uh, to produce that quality of life. Now this morning... Our focus is on chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 11, where we will be challenged, as we just sang, uh, to live the gospel of Christ by fellowshipping in the gospel of Christ. To live the gospel of Christ by fellowshipping in the gospel of Christ. Uh, follow in your Bibles, and let's just first read these first 11 verses of the first chapter of Philippians. Uh, verse 1, chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Let me just pause right there. I think it's extremely interesting. He writes this letter 10 years after the church was established, and, uh, and by this time they are very uh, settled in the biblical pattern for a church of the two primary offices, a plurality of elders whose primary responsibility is to protect the church from false teaching, to feed the church in the Word of God, and to lead them, to guide them in fulfilling the mission that God has given us uh, to fulfill, which is to reach the world for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then deacons who are there to serve uh, the church uh, family. And uh, we're thankful that here at Edgewood that uh, we embrace this biblical pattern of, uh, of leadership within the church with a plurality of elders uh, and then with a wonderful group of men who serve this church as deacons. And then he goes on in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment in the, uh, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ uh, to the glory and praise of God. Now, if you were here last Sunday, another thing that we emphasized is that there are five major themes uh, that run uh, through the book of Philippians. Uh, number one, the priority of living and sharing the gospel. 
And we're clearly going to see that here in chapter 1. Two, the secret of true joy, one of the great uh, gems of this uh, book. Uh, Three, the importance of attitude, the importance of right thinking. Uh, Four, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And then fifth, the motivation to live for Christ in light of His return. Now in chapter 1, we're going to see the beginning of each of these threads of truth that will weave themselves throughout the entire book. But the primary focus of chapter 1 is the living and sharing of the gospel. The living and sharing of the gospel. Now, let me begin by defining two key terms uh, which uh, appear for the first time in verse 5. You see there in verse 5 where it says, In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, if... uh, You have the King James Version. It it talks about in view of your fellowship in the gospel. And uh, the reason for that is the the actual Greek word is the most common word for fellowship, uh, koinonia. Uh, But let's define these terms so we have a clear understanding because the message will, uh, of course, evolve around uh, both of these terms. First, the gospel. Uh, You see there in your notes, it's a very simple definition. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ is ours now and forever through faith in His sin-forgiving death on the cross and His life-giving resurrection from the grave. Amen? The gospel is the good news, and it is great news, that Jesus Christ, He's ours. He's mine right now and forever through faith in His sin-forgiving death on the cross and His life-giving resurrection from the grave. I think probably uh, the the one single verse that just sort of captures the heart of the gospel is 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, He who knew no sin, referring to Jesus, became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Now, what does that verse mean? Does it mean that Jesus became a sinner? Of course not. Uh, When Jesus was there on the cross, He was the undefiled the spotless, pure, holy Son of God. That Lamb of God without blemish. But there on the cross, my iniquities, your iniquities were what? They were laid on Him. And He took the punishment as a righteous man that we deserved as sinners. The simplest way I know how to put it, and I've shared with you uh, this in the past, is that there on the cross, God the Father treated Jesus Christ just like He had lived my sinful life. He was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquity. And He did that so that now, as I've come to know Jesus, He can treat me just like I had lived Christ's, what, sinless life. See, when God looks at the cross, He sees you. And when He looks at you, He sees Jesus Christ. Folks, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Him not only paying the penalty of our sin, canceling out the sin debt, but then depositing into our lives All the righteousness of Jesus Christ to give us a right standing before Him. That's the gospel. And that's to be at the heart of our lives, how we live 
what we share. Now look at the word fellowship. Fellowship being the Greek word koinonia. And the simplest way I would know how to define this word, it is a partnering with others to accomplish a shared vision. That's the first blank you need to fill in in your notes today. It is to partner with others to accomplish a shared vision. Now listen to me very, very carefully, because I don't believe I'll say anything more important uh, all day than what I'll share about in the next five minutes. In the church today, we have lost the heart of true fellowship as it is defined and experienced as it was defined and experienced in the New Testament church. See, to us, fellowship is believers meeting together for a meal or a social or even a Bible study or for prayer to develop meaningful relationships and friendships with one another. Now, all of that, don't misunderstand me, all of that is very, very good, and it has its place. But if that's all it is, you have fallen far short of what the Bible says true Christian fellowship is. And let me explain. In New Testament days, the word fellowship had, actually had commercial overtones. I'll give you an example. If two men bought a boat to start a fishing business, they entered what was called in New Testament days a fellowship, a koinonia with one another. They united their time, they united their talents and treasure, and they made sacrifices together to put their fledgling fishing business on its feet. In the process, they may have developed the closest of friendships, but it was all built around accomplishing a shared vision. Now, in like manner, true Christian fellowship is believers uniting their hearts and resources in partnership to accomplish a shared vision. And what is the shared vision we are to accomplish? We just sang about it. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees. A need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know thee, renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. That's the shared vision that unites believers as one as we follow Jesus Christ. Look at the first point in your notes. True Christian fellowship is believers becoming partners to propagate the gospel. That's the heart of it all. True Christian fellowship is believers becoming partners to propagate the gospel. Look again at verses 3 through 5. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Folks, why is Paul's heart filled with thanksgiving and joy 
every time he remembers these Philippian believers. Why? You tell me. What does the scripture say? What brought him such joy and thanksgiving? Because of what? Yes, because of their participation in the gospel from the first day until now. They became a partner with Christ to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And ten years later, they are still doing it despite suffering and persecution. I mean, it's a wonderful picture. Paul is saying from the day you were converted, you rolled up your sleeves and you got dirty, you got busy, you became ambitious to join me in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, what tied them together, what excited them, what they lived for was the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we need to ask, what ties us together? What excites us? What do we talk about when we come together? Our jobs, our children, politics, Sports, the weather, have our Bible studies become nothing more than gaining more knowledge about the Bible and helping us make it through the problems and temptations we encounter in life? Have our prayers become nothing more than telling God about our aches and our pains, our worries and our heartaches, and asking Him to help? Now, please, please understand me. None of that is bad. I mean, in sharing life together, all of those things will inevitably be a part. But where is our passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ? That is what should be at the center of everything. That is what we should put first. If our Bible studies, if our prayers, if our worship services are not producing believers who enter a fellowship, a partnership with one another to live and share the gospel with a lost world, we have missed the heart of true Christian fellowship. Now, how do we propagate the gospel? How do we propagate the gospel? And look there in your notes, three ways. And let me just give them all three to you very, very quickly, and then we'll talk them about them. First, visual evangelism. Visual evangelism. This is living the gospel. And then verbal evangelism. Sharing the gospel. Speaking the gospel. And then what I'll call viral evangelism, uh, which is spreading the gospel. And what do I mean by viral evangelism? Well, verbal evangelism is what we say to the lost. Viral evangelism is what the lost is saying about us. In other words, are the lost looking at the Edgewood family and saying, golly, what, what, what is with these? How, look at how they love. Look at their honesty and their business dealings. Look at their integrity. Look at their righteousness. This is something different about them. There's something special about them. I mean, do we actually create some holy gossip about what's going on here? Because of the difference that Jesus is making in our lives. You know, you see, all three of these 
come together. Keep, keep your uh, finger there in Philippians, uh, but just turn over to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And you see all three of these in, uh, in one passage, this, this visual, verbal, and viral evangelism. By, and by the way, Thessalonica uh, was the church that Paul established when he left Philippi. Uh, remember we talked about last week how uh, uh, Paul and his co-worker Silas uh, were thrown into jail. Uh, they came at him saying, hey, you're, not, you're teaching what's contrary to Roman teaching and, and, and customs. They, they beat him severely, put him in jail. And remember God brought that earthquake, miraculously delivered them. And Paul converted, uh, saw the uh, jailer converted along with his whole household. And then shortly after that, after encouraging the believers, they moved on. And where did they go? They went to Thessalonica, which was about 100 miles uh, uh, southwest uh, of Philippi. And there established uh, a wonderful, wonderful church. And notice what uh, Paul writes about this third church at Thessalonica, which was also true of the church in Philippi as well. Uh, let's begin reading. Well, let's begin reading at verse 5 to get the larger context. He says, For our gospel, there it is again, that good news about the death and resurrection of Christ did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And then verse 6, you also, you know, they hear, so the gospel comes, they're converted. Then he says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Folks, there's visual evangelism. These folks didn't just make a decision for Christ. Their lives were radically changed by Christ as he invaded their lives and turned them upside down and made them a new creation. And nobody could miss what God had done. There was no other explanation for what had happened in their lives than a holy supernatural God had possessed them and was living in and through them. But notice, their witness didn't stop just with a visual uh, display of the reality of Christ. There was the verbal evangelism. Notice verse 8. He says, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. There is verbal evangelism. Their, their lives provided credibility to their witness, but they didn't stop just with the witness of their lives. They also wanted to share the truth about Jesus and to confront people with the challenge to repent and to place their faith in Jesus and to come to know Him as they had come to know Him, to be transformed by Him as they had be, been transformed uh, by Him. And then notice this, so that we have, He says, uh, Faith toward God has gone forth. Look at that last little phrase in verse 8. So that we have no need to say anything. In other words, Paul says, your testimony has, has gone out to such depths and lengths. We don't need to say anything. You have created a viral atmosphere for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everybody is talking about you folks. And it makes it so much easier for us to explain, hey, you want to know what's made the difference in their lives? Here it is, Jesus Christ. His death, burial, resurrection, he's alive. And he's invaded their hearts. He's invaded 
their lives. So look at the next statement in your notes. Here it is. Those who possess the gospel are to propagate it. If you are a believer today, then it is your obligation to propagate the gospel. God gave it to you, not for you to selfishly hold on to it, but to share it with others. He saved you to extend, express His presence to a lost world, to verbally share the message of salvation, to see others drawn to Him. Uh, Oh, I'm going to have to move quickly. Look at the second point. Second point, true Christian fellowship is believers partaking in God's grace to persevere in the gospel. True Christian fellowship is also believers partaking in God's grace to persevere in the gospel. We only can do it by God's grace. Go back to Philippians. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. What gave Paul the confidence that God would complete, would perfect the good work he had begun in the lives of the Philippian believers? What gave him that confidence? It's obvious. Their perseverance in the gospel. He looks back and he sees their track record over 10 years and holding on to the gospel, keeping the gospel, sharing the gospel. And then he looks at their current lives. He says, hey, you're in this thing with me. We're partners together in this imprisonment, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And I think what Paul is saying there is simply this. Hey, he says, I may be in Rome in prison right now for the sake of the gospel, but you folks, you're being persecuted in Philippi for the sake of the gospel. And yes, I may be in Rome to give a defense of the gospel before Caesar himself, but you're in Philippi to give a defense of the gospel before those emperor cults and to make a stand for Jesus regardless, regardless of the outcome. Now, Where do they find the strength to persevere? Paul wrote, you're what? You're all partakers of God's grace with me. So how do we persevere in the gospel? Notice two things. What does it mean to persevere in the gospel? It means to remain faithful to the gospel no matter what. Remain faithful to the gospel when persecuted. The The believers of Philippi were remaining faithful. Paul was remaining faithful, although they were being persecuted. And then second, it's speaking up for the gospel when challenged. Paul says, I'm not going to shrink back. I'm not going to be intimidated. I'm going to give a defense. I thank God that I'm in prison here in Rome. I thank God that I'm going to have the opportunity to present a defense of the gospel before Caesar, the emperor himself. And yes, I don't know the outcome, what the outcome is. I may live or I may die, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is that Jesus is lifted up, exalted, magnified. And the Philippians were doing that right in their hometown. So what too can be, or what can we be guaranteed of? 
when we remain faithful to gospel, when we speak up, what? God's grace. If we would just simply step out in faith, God's grace is going to be there to empower us. And there are many forces in our culture today trying to keep us to shut up. They want us to keep our faith within the four walls of this church. They don't want us to speak to the truth to our culture. They don't want us to say that Jesus is the only way. And there is no other way to heaven. There is no other way to God. We live in a society that, again, is telling us, be quiet, shut up, just enjoy your little selves and your own little socials and and fellowships, but don't take this beyond the four walls of your church. And look at that next statement in your notes. God has no unfinished works. What God begins, he completes. Amen? God has no unfinished works. What God begins, he completes. And Paul found God to be faithful. The Philippians found God to be faithful, even in the midst of their difficulty and persecution. And then very, very quickly, the last point that we'll just touch on is true Christian fellowship is believing, believers putting at the center of their prayers the priorities of the gospel. True Christian fellowship is believers putting at the center of their prayers the priorities of the gospel. Again, there's nothing wrong about us praying for our aches and pains or praying for our, our, our worries and our heartaches. But again, as I was sharing earlier, there's something terribly wrong when that's all our prayers are. That our prayers just evolve around our little world. And our little loved ones, or our church family, or those in my Sunday school class, or those in my Bible study. No, we have a mission to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. And that is to be at the center of our fellowship, and it should be at the center of our prayers. And when you look at this prayer, it really shows the priorities of the gospel. Because Paul recognized, we're never going to have a credible witness until there's a credible, what, visualization of the gospel in and through our lives. So what does he pray for? In this I pray, verse 9, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So what is he praying for? And get these down very, very quick. Growing in love. God They love you, they love one another, they love a lost world, but let them even abound more in that love. Just let them deepen their love for you, because as they deepen their love for you, it's inevitable that their love for one another will deepen, and it's inevitable that their love for a lost world will deepen. And then God, give, give them the ability to discern what is best, discerning what is best. In other words, God, will you kill the spirit of mediocrity in that church? Give them a spirit of excellence, of living and dying for Jesus Christ. What we talked about a moment ago about every crossroad, every decision they come to, the question will be, not not what's the best benefit for me, but what's the best benefit for the spread of the gospel? What's the best benefit for the exaltation of Christ? And they begin making their decisions on that basis of the gospel and the spread of the gospel And the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And then walking in integrity. Paul recognized if they didn't walk in integrity, no one would be willing to listen to their message. 
and then producing fruit. And what is that fruit? Righteousness. And what is that righteousness? It's right living. It's, it, it's reproducing Christ's life in and through me. He is the vine. I'm the branch. I've been united to Jesus. And as I know that flow, that filling of the Holy Spirit in and through my life, it produces fruit. And it produces fruit not for me, but for others to find nourishment and benefit. And then living for the glory of God is where it all ends. To the glory and praise of God. That's where it all ends. And, and you see that later on in the chapter. When here Paul is in prison, he doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. Whether he's going to live or die. And this is what he says. He says, this is my hope. This is my expectation. That I will not be put to shame in anything. That with all boldness, Christ even right now, as always, will be exalted in my life, whether I die or whether I live. Because for me to live is Jesus. For me to live is the advance, the spread of the gospel. And to die is only gain. So I pray that uh, God will raise up here at Edgewood a band of brothers a band of sisters uh, that come together uh, for the express purpose of embracing the mission that God has given us, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel, making disciples of men and women and boys and girls of all nations. Amen? Father, do only what you can do in our hearts and our lives. Father, we uh, readily see our deficiency in this area. I readily see my own deficiency, but Lord, we believe you are at work in us, both to will and to do of your good pleasure. And Lord, uh, we thank you that you're not finished with us. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll take whatever measures necessary uh, right here in my own life, in our church family, uh, that we would see the priority of the gospel and that we would come to that place uh, where we would know true fellowship a fellowship that's based as we partner to accomplish a shared vision. And that vision being uh, reaching this community, uh, reaching this world for Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we do pray. Amen.